Welcome to the Self and Society podcast, exploring what it means to flourish as an individual and a community. This is your host, Ari Armstrong. Music by Jordan Smith, cjsclassical.com. Please join my email list for updates or help to support the show financially at ariarmstrong.com. Our guest today is Melvin Connor, author of Believers, Faith in Human Nature. Thanks a lot for being on the show today, Professor Connor. Thanks so much for having me, Ari. Yeah, it's a real honor. So I have a quick bio line and then we'll get going. Melvin Connor is a professor in the Department of Anthropology and the program in Neuroscience and Behavioral Biology at Emory University in Atlanta. He earned his PhD in Biological Anthropology in 1973 and his MD in 1985, both from Harvard. He is the author of many books and articles, including The Tangled Wing, Women After All, Unsettled in Anthropology of the Jews, and The Paleolithic Prescription about Diet. He has also been listed in Who's Who in Hell, so I guess I'll have good company down the line. <laughs> um, so there's a, there's a line from your website that I really liked. It says, I apply science to human nature and experience, exploring the links between biology and behavior, medicine and society, nature and culture. I thought that was a nice summary. Thank you. So there's obviously a great deal we could cover today. I want to keep the discussion pretty tightly focused on the new book, Believers. Hopefully toward the end, we'll have a few minutes you can at least tease some of your other major works for our listeners. Um, we'll see how the time goes. And I, But I thought it'd be interesting to start with some of your own biography, because some of that is directly relevant to the topic at hand, which is religious belief. And so I noticed in your book that you were raised in a religious household. So can you briefly describe what that was like and what the nature of the, what the religious feeling was like where you grew up? Sure. Um, it was a um, lower middle class, working class neighborhood in, in central Brooklyn. Uh, it was about a third Jewish, a third Irish American, a third Italian American. And um, so a lot of believing Jews and Catholics and in my, my home, um, the, uh, the belief was in what's called modern Orthodox Judaism. <clears throat> and uh, my grandfather and grandmother lived with us until their death, until his death when I was eight. Uh, were were the religious sort of beacons of the of the family, uh, and and uh, we lived within walking distance of the synagogue uh, um, because of my uh, my grandparents' beliefs. And my grandfather um, prayed uh, in in, uh, in a ritual Jewish manner uh, every morning. I remember. I remember watching him. Uh, I remember learning the uh, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet sitting in his lap uh, from the uh, uh, the Yiddish newspaper called the Forward, Forwards in Yiddish, and uh, which is a little ironic because he was he was a small business owner, and the Forward was a is a, a, a kind of left-wing, even socialist newspaper, but, but the belief system was not socialism. The belief system in, in the family was, uh, was Judaism. And um, 
I was in the synagogue every day from about age uh, seven when my uh, grandfather made sure I was enrolled in the um, the uh, Hebrew school and, and about age 16. So is it something, do you feel like you just kind of fell into the religion or is it something that you felt like you made some kind of conscious choice that this was for you? Or how did that... Well, work? you know, um, anthrop- anthropologists say that uh, that the idea of religion as something separate from from life is is a relatively new one in history, and and uh, it's not that people don't don't uh, distinguish between reality and and uh, in the usual material sense and and uh, the supernatural. But it's that their their people are sort of equally bathed in in both their material reality and their uh, spiritual and religious beliefs, uh, which are generally shared by those around them, and which they they breathe in. I breathed it in uh, 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 with the air uh, around me as I was growing up. So I. I can remember starting to think about choosing it uh, when I was in my mid-teens, maybe, and and realizing that it, I always realized it wasn't the, the the only choice, but I thought it was the only choice for me because it was my grandparents, my parents' choice. My parents were handicapped; they were. Um, my mother was deaf. My father was was almost uh, that, uh, and and um, and so. It might say that that my grandparents had had more of an influence on the choices in the household, but my mother was very they were her parents and, and my mother was very committed to um, to following uh, the rules uh, um, of Judaism um, both in the home and and outside it and and bringing up her children Jewish. Well, I guess my background is similar in some respects and very different in others. I grew up mostly in Western Colorado, and I grew up in a Protestant church. So similar to you, I was religion was all around me growing up. I went to church, went to church camp, went to Bible studies and youth groups and the whole, the whole works. So the, the particulars differed quite a bit, but still a strong background in religion. But it occurs to me that living in a sort of a multicultural environment I guess growing up, we were at least aware that other people that we were new and were close with had very different religious ideas. So I had Catholic friends and Mormon friends and so on. And I'm sure there were many different. So I guess that's different from living up, live, growing up in a society where there is one dominant religion that everybody you know embraces. Well, I, you know, like I say, the, the, the neighborhood was, uh, that part of Brooklyn was more than half Catholic. They were in a lot of Catholic churches that I used to to pass on uh, um, the way to uh, uh, to various places, and and um, uh, yeah, there was there was a certain amount of fear that we had uh, in as Jewish kids um, of of the um, um, the non-Jewish kids, the boys. Uh, and, and, um, there were, there were some bullying, 
directed at, at us, but but um, I would say, and, and I certainly was aware that they had different belief systems. It was just something that um, that I didn't uh, uh, have to think about as a as an option. Certainly, I mean, they didn't want me, and <laughs> I didn't want them. Uh, and and uh, our families were were quite separate, uh, and and uh, you would think that they're going to. And I went to a public school. I went. I was in the synagogue every day because the, the uh, Hebrew school met every every afternoon after school and um, Sundays, and there were services on Friday night and Saturday. Uh, um, but I was in public school with Catholic. And other Christian kids, uh, and the um, <clears throat> um, the reality of, of of differences was was there. Um, I would say that I took it for granted that when I was growing up, that that uh, Judaism was superior. Just as I'm sure my Christian friends grew up thinking uh, the, the same about their upbringing. And it wasn't until uh, I was maybe maybe fifteen or or fourteen or fifteen when I started thinking, you know, I have to actually think about why I believe these things, uh, and and uh, I was starting to learn about um, about evolution and and to get interested in human origins. I was very interested in, in biology, uh, like all Jewish boys in Brooklyn. I was, I was expected to uh, go to medical school. And, uh, um, you know, I had to reconcile my, uh, my scientific, uh, growing scientific outlook with my very well-established uh, religious one. Um, and eventually, uh, my... Not just because of, of scientific growing scientific knowledge, but be, because of a variety of life circumstances. When I started college, like like a lot of kids, I've I've seen and taught in half a century as a college teacher. Um, I uh, I ended up losing my faith in that first semester during that first semester in college. I started college young. I was only seventeen, and and um, um, and so there was an overlap between my uh, childhood beliefs. Partly, uh, partly because I s- continued to live at home. I went to uh, Brooklyn College, a public institution that was. I could see the spot, the you know, the spire, the clock tower of of uh, uh, Brook- one of the Brooklyn College buildings from my uh, window where I slept. As a child, and uh, and so I grew up in a in a kind of circumscribed uh, and protected environment in some ways. So it sounds like maybe this clash or uh, conflict between your religious beliefs and your interest in evolutionary biology is that part of what pushed you into the path of biological anthropology as opposed to being a medical doctor, I mean, you have your MD too, but as opposed to being a medical doctor primarily. Yeah, well, I, I was, um, I, I had the professional ambition of becoming a doctor, and it seemed like uh, almost, almost as natural as becoming a, a, a faithful Jew. But 
but at the same time, um, I was very, I had a wonderful um, high school education, and also public, but, but very good, and, and, uh, and was greatly influenced by, in particular, by one teacher uh, who, who uh, had her two full years in world history and advanced placement world history. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a character uh, in Joyce's uh, novel, Ulysses, I think, I think it is, that we, who says uh, history is a nightmare from which I, uh, which I, I am trying to wake up. <laughs> and, uh, and that, you know, I, I, uh, I sort of had the feeling, especially growing up uh, uh, Jewish, I was born the year after uh, the end of World War II, and my parents had claimed that they postponed my conception until, uh, until after the war and after the closing of the gas chambers. Uh, not that they had a lot to be afraid of uh, in, in the United States, but there was certainly... Uh, uh, an atmosphere of uh, almost grief in the community I grew up in uh, in the years immediately after World War II. Great consciousness of the damage that can be done by uh, by certain trends in in history. Um, and I and I already in my uh, my last year of high school, I, I remember I had f- formed the uh, the ambition to. Uh, uh, to know as much as there was to know about the scientific basis of human nature. So I thought, well, uh, you know, there's also learning physics, and I, I learned that, uh, you know, how atoms and uh, the elements of of chemistry and, uh, and molecules, the elements of biology, and, and I thought that... Uh, uh, since human beings are the elements of, of history, uh, then understanding human nature would be a way of understanding history. Uh, I didn't realize at the time that <clears throat> wanting to know everything there was to know about the scientific basis of human nature was not a big ambition in 1963 <laughs> because it just wasn't much that was known and it wasn't wasn't even thought about much, uh, and um, you know, these many years later, it, it's it's way too big a subject for any one person to to master. And I'm, but I'm very happy to have played my little role in in building up that knowledge and that perspective on uh, on human experience. So, sometime during your, during your undergrad, that you decided you wanted to switch gears and go into the uh, more of the academic route. Well, it was, yeah, I had the, my last year in college, I had the medical school applications on my, on my desk and I didn't fill them out and I applied to graduate school in, in biological anthropology instead. I mean, one of, one of the reasons was so I was very involved in, in uh, uh, the left-wing movements of the 60s. Uh, um, I and the integration movement, the uh, anti-war movement, even as a high school student, and I actually was uh, was present at the I Have a Dream speech that occurred two days before my 17th birthday, and I I defied my 
parents' wishes to get on a bus in the middle of the night, um, go to Washington, and <clears throat> and uh, that that set of experiences um, was also an important uh, new window on life for me and a, and a challenge to my faith, mainly because. Uh, there wasn't, a, uh, although I, I re absolutely revered uh, my uh, my rabbi. I, I didn't see him stepping up to uh, to address the ethical challenges of of nuclear bombs and and the the, the integration movement, and then the, the eventually the uh, the growing war in Vietnam. Um, and so there were, there were. I was raised in, with a certain ethical viewpoint, uh, partly by by Jewish authorities who uh, who weren't always. Some did, but m most were not paying much attention to uh, what I considered the big wrongs of of the the era that that I and my friends were trying to uh, do something to correct. So. So there was that. There was uh, an unrequited love. There was uh, a philosophy teacher who challenged my uh, my beliefs, and, and the upshot of all of it was that uh, by the time I, I I was in the middle of my first year of college, I was I was sort of leaning toward anthropology and. And uh, but but uh, uh, as a new way of exploring human origins, also as a way of understanding what I ended up writing about in this book uh, more than half a century later, um, namely uh, the tremendous variety of, of religious beliefs, which um, obviously to a thinking person has to be. Uh, uh, in some way, a challenge to their own most cherished uh, parochial parochial beliefs, and it was, it was eventually how I experienced it. So I wanted to understand the the, the cross cultural manifestations of of human nature and uh, culture in in particular cultures, and uh, and part of that was the origins of. Uh, of faith and and uh, the origins and diversity of religious belief. Um, well, that kind of brings us to your experiences in Botswana, isn't that? That's the country where it was, right? With the right. Kung people. <clears throat> and so, was that during graduate school, or was that after your graduate school degree? Uh, that was that was <clears throat> um, my doctoral thesis, and it was and, and there was a. Uh, so I spent almost two years there, um, working working on my I, my doctoral research uh, after several years in graduate school, and um, and completed my thesis and 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 <clears throat> began teaching and went back there uh, for six months um, with my wife, who was also a, a budding anthropologist, uh, although self self taught. And uh, uh, and so that was a great formative experience for me. Uh, well, one thing you talk about in the book are these trance dances that they 
that they did and your participation in those and some of the supernatural beliefs that were related to those dances. So you want to give us the the thumbnail version of what that was about and what how that what, what that was like to participate in that? Sure, I can try. Uh, the 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 um People, people don't have a set time when they do this. Uh, and traditionally, you know, it might, it might be um, a couple of times a week, uh, um, probably at most. It's very uh, energy-consuming. Uh, people either get excited about, uh, uh, about an antelope that's been killed or, or they... Uh, they have a sick person in the community that they want to, to heal, or they it might be just just uh, the moon is particularly bright, uh, and and um, and usually women will start by by sitting around the fire and 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 clapping and singing, and the the singing has a you know this to me this very yodely quality. Um, I don't know if your system permits this, but I have uh, recordings on iTunes that I could play if you want to get a, a, a little clip. Well, I tell uh, you what, if you, I, I'm, I'm going to do a show page for this. So if you have links and such, if there's some kind of link to it, send me that an email and I'll definitely drop that in. I also okay. saw a video, not of you, but just, I don't know who it was, on YouTube of, of some of these dances. So I... I understand this kind of yodeling type of style of singing. Right. So I'll drop that in too. Just, I don't know if it's the same. I assume it's similar at least to what you experienced. Well, I, I, I you can send me that link. I can tell you whether I think it's legit. There are, there are uh, perfectly good things uh, that are, are acceptable, uh, that are accessible on, on, uh, on the web and, and uh, that I had nothing to do with. So, um, so it's likely that what you saw was was real, but so so there is this this almost psychedelic quality to the singing, and and and, uh, and then men will start to come out and and uh, have dance dance rattles on their ankles and and start dancing and uh, uh, they start dancing in a circle around <coughs> the women's circle and and um, uh, and then people may. If it goes on, uh, it sort of has to, you know, it has to catch fire. You might say that uh, people have to click, and and uh, it's interesting that that if it's really a very uh, communal activity, and it's interesting that uh, that if it doesn't work, you know, uh, uh, and sort of peters out early, <coughs> people start pointing fingers. The women will say the men weren't dancing. They weren't. Uh, going into trance, the men will say the women weren't singing well enough. To, and there are there 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 is a, a, an option for for uh, for women to be healed, uh, trance healers also. But uh, in this particular ceremony, which is pretty central, it's it's uh, it's usually men. Uh, men men um, may use uh, plants that. They say or have hallucinogenic properties only when they're in training, uh, and they eventually get to a point where they can go into trance by by this very vigorous dancing and staring into the fire, inhaling smoke, and but but I often say that the uh, 
well, the more the, the the more fancy the dance, the less likely the man is to go in trance into trance. And the 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 dances that men do, who are powerful healers, are actually very monotonous, and they're just pounding their heels on the ground over and over again uh, for hours. Uh, and it's kind of like delivering a little blow to the base of your skull. <laughs> uh, and, and incessantly for, you know, hour after hour. Um, and, but it's also, you, you know, in order to, um, just like with, with, uh, with the advanced yogis, with, uh, uh um, people who uh, go into uh, speaking in tongues and in, in certain, um, Christian branches, uh, uh, people who go into altered states, of, or even even just just prayer prayerful altered states, there is a there has to be a belief system, there has to be a, a, a framework that tells you um, why you're doing this and 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 why it's not only okay but a a, a good thing to uh, to basically lose control of your usual mental processes and. And they believe uh, the Kung believe that that they uh, the advanced trancers leave their bodies during trance, and and they have to uh, and they have the opportunity to uh, travel to the what they call the uh, village of the spirits. I want to see to go, and and the uh, they they. Um, would do various things there they'll 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 try and glean information about why someone is sick because they're always blaming the the spirits of the ancestors and the gods for for illness and and injury and um in fact in this in this so the transcendent circle is a circle of of women singing and clapping there's the circle of of men dancing, and then there's a circle of spectators, which might include teenagers and old, older people who are not trancers, and um, and then there's and they're, so they're observers, and uh, and they also get healed during the laying on of hands when the when the healer goes into trance. But um, in addition, there's fourth circle, which they say is where the the ancestors and and spirits come and sit and watch, uh, and the, there are moments in the in, in the ceremony, and it's really it's, I mean, to call it a ceremony, I mean, one shouldn't think of of uh, uh, something with very strict uh, protocol. It's, uh, but but there there are but it's definitely a ceremony, and then there are points when the man uh, in trance will stop and. And point his finger at the fourth circle and start yelling at the at the spirit. So this is not the kind of reverence that uh, that for God that I was raised with, and that I'm guessing you, as a Christian child, were raised with. There's a there's a an, an expression. There's a much more mixed kind of set of feelings. They think the gods and spirits are powerful, but they think they're more more malign than than uh generous and beneficent and and they don't thank them very much <laughs> they they kind of yell at them and this is one 
one of the things, I mean, there, there is a tradition in Judaism of arguing with God, uh, uh, which I think is, is uh, partaking of the same, that same quality of, of, of you know, non-reverential questioning, even while be- believing very sincerely in, in, uh, in these supernatural powers and authority. But, uh, uh, I mean, I knew by the time I, I, I saw this trans dance, I knew that there was a lot more to religion than what I was brought up with. There was a lot more to it than, than what I and my, my Catholic uh, uh, schoolmates were brought up with. Uh, it was before a major influx of, of, uh, of um, Hindu, Muslim, uh, Buddhist, believers into the uh, United States. But uh, that was that was on the verge of happening, and certainly as an anthropology, as a young anthropologist, I was totally aware not only of of those, those, those major religions, but also literally thousands of minor religions, like the one I experienced directly uh, in Africa. And, and when I came to think about what what religion is, um, and how to uh, to use the facts of, of uh, the scientific basis of human nature to, to to help account for it. There's a lot to account for. It's not just you know uh, the Judeo-Christian or Abrahamic uh, uh, faiths. Uh, it's Buddhism where there's no god, at least theoretically. It's it's Hinduism where there's up to hundreds of gods, at least for some people. Uh, there are uh, religions like the uh, like the Kong uh, I lived with, who uh, people people who are who are not reverential toward toward their gods, but but actually angry and trying to uh, trying to get their gods to do the right thing. Um, but rather than begging them to do the right thing or assuming that whatever they do is right. And, and then there are the things that, um, that all religions have in common. And, and, uh, but, but as I approached this, this book, I, I, I wanted that entire uh, panorama of, of different kinds of religious uh, and faith commitments to be um, to be in front of me, and um, I, you know, I uh, I made a little post-it note when I first started out the project, and uh, and it was on my uh, on my desktop, and it I, I have it in front of me still, and it says awe. Sacred and profane, fear, spirituality, ritual, rites of passage, taboo, purity and danger, belief, explanation, narrative, origins, altered states, out-of-body experience, near-death experience, mysticism, morals, prayer, peak experience, flow, attachment, communion, love, group identity, xenophobia. All that uh, was what I thought of in a short time as part of of, uh, uh, what you need to, to be thinking about explaining if you're trying to explain religion. And uh, that's only a fraction of, uh, of the different possibilities. 
Well, that's why I think your book is really valuable, because whether or not a reader agrees with some of your interpretations and theses, just the amount of information about different religions is is really interesting in some of the studies, you know, all the various studies with whether it's looking at looking at people's brain waves or looking at how faith impacts their practices or healing. That's all just fascinating. But uh, listening to your description of this, these trans dances, I just was imagining how overwhelmingly psychologically these must have been for the kids watching. It just must have been really powerful and impactful to imagine these spirits around you uh, that are impacting, interfering with your life or inter- somehow engaging with your life. I guess our parallel in my tradition would be, we, we didn't want, we didn't go for the arguing with God bit, but we would certainly, you know, be angry at the deep, at the devils and such, which, you know, my church, those were very real. Um, Satan and his minions were real yeah. forces in the world, we thought. So I guess that would be my closest parallel. Yeah. Well, um, you know, most religions have either, either have some sort of um, uh, dark figures in their pantheon, like like Satan, um, or and or they have they have um, a dark side of God and um, uh, Jewish mysticism uh, says that that. Um, uh, although most attributes of, of God are good and admirable and magnificent, um, there is there is a dark side that that can be can be triggered that uh, uh, that can help explain at least for for Jewish mystics and some other Orthodox Jews that can help explain um, the terrible things that are, that can happen in life and the world. Yeah, well, that's that's totally alien to my the way I was brought up. So we have different ways of dealing with evil in the world. But uh, but I wanted to hit one more note of biography before we get more deeply into the book, and that's how you ended up at Emory University in the midst of getting your MD. So you went back to school, back to Harvard, and I think you got your MD in 1985. But during this same period in the mid early to mid 80s, you were beginning a career in anthropology at Emory. So. <laughs> how did you do that? Yeah, how did that, that happen? Like right, right, really right. Difficult. So, well, one thing, one thing I can assure, I can assure you of, uh, uh, and any young people who might be listening, uh, please take note that it was completely unplanned, uh, and 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 my life uh, took the course it took through um, some amount of of ambition and planning in certain directions, but also a tremendous amount of luck and, and um, uh, you know, to, to go back to how, how I got to Emory and how I got to medical school, I, 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 had, I had taught at, at Harvard uh, for five year, years or so, uh, six, and um, never got over wanting to uh, become a doctor like, like most Harvard junior faculty. Uh, uh, in that era, it's not. It's not today. I uh, I didn't have a long-term future on the Harvard faculty, and and um, and the prospect of of um, uh, of medical school started to to look like uh, something that would first of all give me a, a really great education in in basic human biology, and second. 
a lot of a lot of experiences that uh, that would uh, would help me in my quest to understand human nature. But at the time that I started medical school, I was planning to. It wasn't just as an intellectual exercise. I wasn't even planning to write a book about it, which I ended up doing. Uh, it was, I was going to try to become a, a practicing doctor, having something to do with the brain, e either, e either in neurology or biological psychiatry, but I thought I would probably end up in academic medicine and, and try to keep some ties to, to medical anthropology. Um, I was in my second year or I guess at medical school, when I got, uh, uh, I was in 1982, uh, uh, I got a letter from uh, somebody at Emory, which I had never heard of. Uh, uh, I had heard of Atlanta, but <laughs> and driven through it once, but. Uh, um, I, I, it said, you know, we, we are looking, we're starting an anthropology department looking for somebody to be the first chair and, and we'd like you to apply. And my wife and I, you know, looked at it and had a good laugh over it. <laughs> I mean, and and uh, it just didn't make any sense. I probably should have been more polite, but I, I you know, the phone rang and before cell phones, my landline rang in our kitchen and we already had um, our second child who was a baby then and um, and I was in medical school and, and um, uh, you know, when I say there's a lot of luck, I, I, I didn't always pick up the phone uh, in those days. Uh, uh, but but I did, and and uh, uh, my my now good friend uh, Peter Brown is still uh, is about to retire from the Emory faculty. He was on the other end and said, "Did you get our letter?" And I said, "Well, yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't answer it." He said, "Well, we were hoping you would apply. Tomorrow's the deadline." I said, "Are you aware that I am a medical student?" <clears throat> and, <coughs> it was a long pause, and uh, he. He finally said, "That's very interesting." And and the reason he thought it was interesting was he was also a medical anthropologist. They they wanted to have stronger ties to the to the medical school, which is on the campus, right next to the campus here. Not true everywhere. It wasn't true at Harvard, uh, and it makes a difference to the uh, to the amount of exchange between a medical uh, center and a in a university if, if they're physically close. And they also wanted uh, better ties to the CDC. They were planning to start a school of public health. And, and uh, anyway, one thing led, led to another. I went down for a visit. Uh, I, I went down for a second visit. I said, look, I, I am not going to do this right away because I'm going to finish medical school. And, and uh, they accepted that, and that's how that's how those different dates appear in in uh, in the different biographies that you found. <laughs> in yeah, 80, yeah. 80, 82, I, I, in the late spring of eighty two, I said yes, I'll come to Emory after I go back and do my third year of medical school, and then I sort of went was going back and forth. Uh, I, I moved to Atlanta in eighty three, but I, I also went back. 
uh, and did also did some some of my uh, last clinical rotations here in Atlanta, and uh, and got my my MD from Harvard. And at the time, I was you know still hoping to find some way uh, um, to continue uh, uh, to keep a hand in in medicine, as they say. But um, not long after that, my uh, my wife. Uh, was diagnosed with breast cancer and everything changed. So I, I ended up being uh, um, a, an intellectual and professor by career. And again, and, and I, did, um, I did have the opportunity to teach some medical students to, to uh, help with uh, some of those ties to to public health, the CDC, and the medical school over the years, and uh, and I've also taught probably thousands of pre-medical and pre-nursing and other pre-health students, <clears throat> and naturally a lot of them come to me for advice about medical school. That's uh, that's quite a story. It's almost as though the hand of God got guided you. Well, uh, the the religious person in my shoes would probably say exactly that. Um, I I just say I, I had some some ambition, some some talent, some uh, um, so, uh, some luck maybe a lot of luck and and uh and i had to be uh, my life wouldn't have worked if i hadn't been open to to a lot of unplanned circumstances both both positive and negative and uh, but but certainly that that curiosity uh, uh about human nature that i had established uh in my in my last year of high school, and I was doing AP World History and also a lot of science and biology, uh, and eventually ended up with anthropology as a sort of compromise. But uh, but but the goal that I had then uh, very strongly, I was very strongly motivated to really understand people in a in a fundamental way, and also in a broad way that included. Uh, Everything from genes and evolution to culture and and psychology, uh, the the experiences I had in Africa obviously were uh, tremendously valuable. Exposure to the range of of, of humanity and and human human experience. Uh, also, because this was a hunting and gathering society, there was um, it was a sense that uh, uh, this was, was something like. Um, some of the environments that, that that we evolved in as hunter gatherers in the past, uh, and then when I when I went to medical school and and, and had clinical rotations, I delivered thirty six babies. I, I saw people in mental breakdowns, uh, people with dementia, people and other neurological disorders, uh, and just understanding people facing death. Uh, Sometimes bravely, sometimes not, uh, uh, and 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 just the, the 
power of, of, of biology over, over the human mind and, and over human life um, became apparent to me in a different way. So, you know, I, I really, I can't even say, <coughs> Ari, how, how I put this all together. Uh, but over the years, I, I have tried to, to, to do that. And um, I always take an eclectic approach. Some people think I'm a mile wide and an inch deep. And I, I try to, to think of it as, as, you know, reaching out to different fields and, and trying to go more than an inch deep into each one of them. And uh, I see, and I've seen in my career, a huge amount of parochialism in academia, a huge amount of, of commitment to one approach to, to human nature, human behavior. Uh, and uh, I, one of the reasons I chose anthropology is that it, it seemed like the most eclectic approach and it seemed like the one most open to... Uh, to other disciplines like biology and, and uh, uh, psychology and medicine and history. So, well, it seemed to work out great. So I'm glad you went that route. And uh, well, thank you. You know, from as far as I'm concerned, that's that's the kind of approach that appeals to me and that seems most likely to yield the the most and significant insights about the human condition, which is you know complicated after all. Um, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> So I can agree with that, Ari. So I kind of wanted to start to dig a little bit deeper into the book and the substance of the book. And I thought I would just start by trying to pitch you what I think my summary of your thesis, and then you can tell me if I'm right or wrong or complete or incomplete. So here's how I, here's how I wrote the synopsis. Many or most people are physiologically predisposed to experience religious rituals as meaningful and to hold supernatural beliefs. And religion offers real value to many people and positively affects their lives. That, to me, seemed to en encompass what you were about. Is that how you would put it? Yeah, I think so. Um, um, you you were alluding earlier. You know, we asked a question I didn't quite answer. Which might, what must it have been like for the for the children of the Kong or Bushmen? They're sometimes called. To be growing up and being immersed in these trans dances, I didn't mention that women always have the babies and small children in their lap or in the sling on their on their side or back while they're doing while they're sitting in the middle of the trance dance and singing and and doing this syncopated clapping. It's very complicated and. Uh, so children are are really immersed, and 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 that immersion is um, is not going to affect every child equally. And I, you know, there are people in that culture, just like in in Judaism or, or Christianity or Hinduism, or any other religion, who who become devout uh, for for one reason or another, and. Um, and people who kind of can take it or leave it, and, and and I think that's been true in every culture and every in every faith tradition since the beginning of religion. And 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 I think we know now uh, 
why that is. There are individual variations in susceptibility to to faith and religious devotion, which are heritable, and uh, they're not. There, it's not that you inherit uh, the propensity to be to be Hindu or, or Jewish. It's, it's that within whatever religious tradition you're immersed, you you uh, have a greater or lesser inclination to to see beyond the the material world. And 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 I think the one, the one thing that I um, that I used in the book as a as a definition. Um, uh, it, 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 that I think applies um, uh, very broadly, uh, it, it, although it's a Christian uh, uh, statement from from the letter to the Hebrews. It, it's it's uh, the conviction of things unseen. It's a, it's a belief in things hoped for, I think, is the way it goes. And the, uh, uh, depending on the translation, the conviction of things unseen. And... And that's something that that some people are more susceptible to than others, and some people are susceptible to it in one part of their lives, like I was until I was seventeen, and then not, or less so. Uh, but there's no doubt that, uh, just as there's no doubt that that the critics of religion are right when they point to the to the bad and evil consequences of religion and religious belief. We see it on the news all the time. And the way it can divide people and the way the way it can even promote violence and has and part of part of the nightmare of human history has been um, um, I don't know if I want to say because of, but it has certainly has involved uh, different religious traditions clashing with each other at the tremendous human cost. Those are all bad things, but but um, as I often say to the what I call, call think of as the aggressive atheists, um, if you want to take a scientific approach, and and some of them are very good scientists, uh, if you want to take a scientific approach to the question of uh, of what is the impact of religion on human life and and also, you know, they want to. They're serious about trying to abolish it. And, and you know, what would happen if it were abolished? That's that's partly a uh, an empirical. It is it is an empirical question. I would say, and says, what would happen if religion was abolished? It really depends on what you think religion is doing in 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 the world. And if you wanted to know that as a scientist, you would, you know. You'd open up your digital document and and you'd make two columns and one would be bad done by religion and the other would be good done by religion and you wouldn't you wouldn't have you know exact measurements or or a science like like uh, laboratory chemistry uh, or even laboratory psychology but but you would at least be taking into account both things on on both sides of the ledger and. They don't do that. They just have one column, which is evil done by religion, how, how religion misleads people, how, how religion uh, creates uh, fairy tales instead of uh, uh, acceptance of science, how, how, how religion pits people against each other, how religion sends young people to go and blow themselves up to, uh, to, uh, to make a religious point. Um, 
Sure, there's all that, but there's also growing evidence that, that not only do uh, do most uh, religious people not do those kind of things, but they they take comfort in in their beliefs. They are very often there's growing evidence that they're often better off when they get sick. Uh, in any number of different diseases, uh, uh, if they're religious, they take better care of themselves. Uh, they're uh, uh, more likely uh, to to live longer with, uh, you know, kidney dialysis. And that was a Saudi Arabian study with Muslims, and, and more likely to live uh, uh, to to avoid uh, the stressful effects of racism if they're, you know, middle-aged black people in in the U.S. and and you know there are many many other studies that I talk about in my chapter. About this, and and the the other the other question is, um, does religion figure in altruism? And what the aggressive atheists always t- tell everyone is, look at Bertrand Russell, look at Albert Einstein, look at all the people who have been uh, tremendously ethical atheists. And I mean, who 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 will Anybody who knows anything will, will not try to challenge that statement. It's, of course it's possible to be a very good person and an atheist. It's possible to be very altruistic and an atheist. But there's still a question of whether, whether uh, religious faith figures into some people's altruism and some people's willingness to, to cooperate or sacrifice for others. Um, there are a number of studies now showing that uh, uh, the great majority of my life, say, let's say 70% or so of, of doctors, practicing doctors, uh, say that they believe in God in, in, uh, in the United States, in Western tradition. Um, and uh, it's higher with, with nurses and some other kinds of uh, health professionals. Um, People, studies show that people will, in certain economic games, will be more generous if, in a market setting, let's say in a Muslim country, they'll be more generous to to others in the game uh, when when the call to prayer is being sounded than at other times. Uh, there'll be more people will be more generous on on in a Christian country on Christian holidays than other days. Uh, and and there, there are lots of other examples. You don't have to be religious to be a good person, but, but for many people, they're, they're sort of part being good and being, being faithful or sort of uh, part and parcel of each other. Well, there's a whole lot of interest in what you just said. And I, I tend to be pretty sympathetic to the new atheists, but I think that you make you make a very fair point. It's like, yeah, you have to evaluate the good and the bad of religion. Anything, if you only look at the negative side, of course, you think it's a bad it's a bad deal. Um, so I think that's right. that that makes a lot of sense to me, and I I appreciate that sort of pushback. I was curious. I wanted to go back to the uh, to the Botswana for just a minute, based on something you said. I was wondering if any of the youth there approached you and tried to get a sense of 
what your life was like outside, you know, in your home, where, where you lived and what life was like in the West. And if any of them seemed open to uh, considering that as a, you know, like maybe leaving their community or were they, would that have been just totally alien and unnatural for them to even consider that? Well, uh, leave, leaving your community, I mean, their, their idea of a, of a really bold move is, is uh, to get married to someone who's, who's in a band uh, on the other side of the next hill uh, and, and, uh, and move 10 miles away. And, and, um, and here are slightly different accents, uh, uh, accent in people's voices, uh, um, you know, the, the people have always moved, but they've generally moved a, as groups, and they haven't uh, always moved as much in, in history as, as as we do now, especially across cultural boundaries. I have to say that the uh, at in the first you know the first two trips that I, that I was there, there was there was there were incipient indications of change, but. Um, they were, you know, young people, uh, uh, as you say, and some older people were were dazzled by uh, automobiles and pressure pressure lamps. You know, like a Coleman pressure lamp, where you, you used to push the button uh, 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 over and over again would build up uh, pressure in the in the uh, butane or whatever it is in the in the base of the lamp and and then you take a match push a button and there would be almost an explosion of very bright light uh, and the mantle would be lit and not burning not not being consumed and uh, you know this is a pretty elementary camping piece of camping <laughs> equipment but I, I remember this guy was a friend of Ours, who is maybe fifty years old at the time, who who's just saw this. He he, didn't, he wasn't seeing it for the first time, but he was kind of kind of thinking about it, and and uh, he just shook his head back and forth and he said, "You people are gods," <laughs> and um, you know, there's that that feeling, uh, you know, that that Western people had magic. But when they and when they actually started to to change their culture, which they by now have, and I, uh, I went back uh, in two thousand five, um, <clears throat> a couple of my grown kids, and and saw a lot of change. But what they were changing to, what they were assimilating to, was the neighboring uh, cattle herding and farming people's customs and practices, not. Jumping like wanting to jump over the ocean to something European or American, uh, and and uh, so that that's a sort of intrinsic, uh, gradual change that anthropologists are, are very familiar with. Um, I, I would say also that that uh, they showed uh, remarkably little curiosity about us. My my wife and I. Uh, and other anthropologists there at various different times, um, considering how how utterly curious we were about about them, 
Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think, I think, well, for one thing, how curious would most Americans be about, about them? <laughs> um, probably not very, and probably wouldn't want to visit there or stay there for, for more than a, a, a few days. But, um, they were, um, they, they thought it made a lot of sense uh, for us to be fascinated by them and because they considered themselves fascinating. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's how it, of course you're interested in what we do. Of course you write down what we do. I, you're, you're, gonna, I, I, you're not going to, all those little pieces of paper you write down stuff on, you're not going to throw them away. You're going to go back to your, your own village and sell them. Uh, which is not too far from the truth. Right. And, um, but at the same time, they, I think they appreciated uh, that we were kind of telling their story to, to the world. And I, I think it may, you know, some anthropologists, not, not I, but some, some of the anthropologists who've studied them, uh, have become tremendously uh, committed to helping protect them and as as they go through the inevitable changes of the 20, 21st century um, and and uh, but but um, for me it was um, it was a very important mission to uh, to learn about them and tell tell others about them and maybe maybe do it in a way that would have some influence on the way people think and act and certainly but in the way maybe the way people uh conceptualize human behavior when you when you include such different culture well i think even I, I think richard dawkins is a big fan of religious studies in the sense of making people aware of the variety of religious well, the right of religious experience. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, that's, it's really, it's fascinating to me. And I, yeah, I, I think people should learn more about that kind of stuff. But let's, speaking of Dawkins, let's jump back to the new atheist for a minute. So I, uh, I, Dawkins has been really influential in my thinking. And I think Sam Harris is doing really great work um, in general. So here's how, so I don't want to, you know, try to speak for them, but here's how I would try to, give the atheist pushback to what you're saying in your book. The first note is that these atheists are more concerned not with the ritualistic aspect of religion, but simply with whether the religious claims, like the claim, the metaphysical claims, are true or false. Like, did, was Jesus really born from a virgin? You know, all, I mean, insofar as they're making claims about the world, they are valuable. And then the next point that I think is most most important maybe is that i think i don't think any new atheist would say well look let it would be i mean i know you've talked about if you could push the button or pull the lever or whatever and just end religion actually i don't know what they would say but obviously it's impossible so i think what they say is that it's possible for people to slowly adapt and adopt good substitutes for the aspects of religion that are meaningful and important um so for example you know you get people promoting secular humanism. I heard, I heard you on with Michael Shermer and he's, he's likes to talk about that a lot. And Sam Harris has his book waking up 
which is about how people can sort of co-opt Buddhist practices for a secular lifestyle. So what do you, do you I mean, are you, are, you, are you and they just speaking across each other to a certain degree, or how do you respond to those sorts of atheistic concerns? Well, I don't, I don't think that, that Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins or Dan Dennett are going to take somebody like me very seriously, but I certainly take them seriously. And, and um, first of all, I, I think before uh, uh, Dawkins got interested in attacking religion, he was already one of the great um, evolutionary uh, thinkers of his generation and, and someone who, who, who was able to communicate evolutionary science in, in a way that, that few other people have, have ever done. Uh, and Harris, uh, although he started his career with uh, the end of faith and letter to a Christian nation, he later became a neuroscientist and has done, done very interesting work. Um, I, I, so these are people that I uh, can admire, uh, at least uh, for a number of things that they've done. Uh, I also admire uh, the way Christopher Hitchens was not a scientist, uh, but it was definitely an aggressive atheist. Uh, the way he faced cancer and, and ultimately left this world, uh, I mean, not only did he die without knuckling under, as W.C. Fields said about his own atheism, uh, or predicted, but he, 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 I think he was very courageous in the way he faced death. And, and just as it's true that atheists uh, can be uh, wonderful people, they can also be people who, who face death with a plum uh, without, and, and it's not true that there are no atheists in foxholes. Uh, but the, and, and, and that's so the good, I mean, let me get back to the, 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 the question you raised about their idea that, that there won't be a magic wand that makes religion disappear, but gradually people will, um, uh, will give it up. And, um, you know, I think that it's, it, it, there's a lot of support for uh, for the claim uh, uh, in uh, up to a point uh, the, the people of Western Europe the people of of, uh, uh, of China uh, and now uh, to to uh, uh, an important extent uh, the people of the United States um, are turning away from from conventional religion, and and they're uh, they're doing very well, thank you, without without uh, conventional religion in, in quite large numbers. Um, but the, the there there are several arguments I see for it not getting to to zero or anything like zero in terms of uh, the number of people who. Who believe in, in uh, you know things unseen in one way or another. Um, first of all, there are genetic differences, and one of the reasons that Sam Harris is who he is, and that Richard Dawkins is who he is, is that <clears throat> uh, they're missing. Uh, uh, I don't want to say missing. They they have a different set of genes governing their their attitude toward toward uh, the unseen, 
uh, than, than religious people do. And, and one of the reasons I thought I could do something useful in this book was that I'd been on the other side. So maybe I was somewhere in between in my genetic tendency. I, and as a child, uh, adolescent, I, I stuck with the faith I was raised in and then, uh, and then adapted in, in the sense that, that you propose can happen. And a lot of people have done that, uh, but um, not not everyone, uh, and and not yet a majority. Even in the countries uh, where this trend has gone quite far, you know, you, the countries where atheism is is very uh, is at a very high level now, like uh, Scandinavia, Britain, Germany, and so on. Um, you. You have uh, a, not a majority who say there's there's nothing supernatural. You have uh, you might have a third or or, or so who say that, and uh, and <clears throat> maybe you know, and it's very, it's different in different countries. I'm just I'm just trying to ballpark a thing here. Maybe a third who who continue with some form of uh, uh, conventional religion. And uh, uh, and then you have this this group of people who say no, I don't <clears throat> believe in their conventional religion, and I don't I don't believe that Jesus rose from the grave after being dead for three days, and I uh, I don't believe that Moses received the law from God on Mount Sinai, and but but um, who who say, but I don't. I don't think, I don't, I don't think that the world is completely material. I don't need uh, to, to um, have scientific evidence for everything I believe. And those people tend to call themselves spiritual. They might be uh, interested in in crystals, or they might be uh, 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 praying privately, or or they might be meditating, or they might be adopting some Buddhist practices like uh, like Sam Harris recommends, although he, he does it in a more secular way, or they, yeah, they, might, uh, they might just declare that um, there has to be something more in the world than what science can, can detect and prove. Uh, I, I think that uh, you could have a lot of people giving up. You could have a majority of people eventually giving up conventional religions, uh, even while um, some people cling to them, and other people are in this middle ground of of, of self declared spirituality, where they they uh, they can't. Uh, they're not interested in in in, in the kind of of rigorously. Uh, scientific and materialistic uh, or material world um, outlook that that someone like Dawkins or um, or Dennett or Harris um, insist on so so, so then there the, to just go back to the question of genetic differences if, if I think it's difficult to challenge the idea that there are that there are these uh, uh, genetic influences on how 
susceptible people are to uh, to religious faith or call it indoctrination if you want, although it's hard to uh, it's hard to explain if if it's all indoctrination, it's hard to explain why some people are more religious than their parents were when they were growing up. Uh, but but um, there there are are differences in in these inclinations and in every country in every uh, um, in every major religion at least we have evidence that the that the most religious people have the most children so if you put that together with the the fact that there's a genetic partially genetic influence um, and you have two opposing trends going on in the world now. You have the one that that uh, uh, that the aggressive atheists are are, uh, are pointing to and trying to accelerate of, of a sort of a cultural evolution away from conventional faith, and at the same time you have um, you have the most devoted uh, and religious people in every country having the most children. So, you know, the long-term outcome <clears throat> is not 100% clear, but I think, uh, I guess, what I, what I predict in the book is, uh, is, a, is an equilibrium of some kind uh, eventually that uh, might, might look like uh, the way Northwestern Europe looks now. Uh, I don't think the, the United States will will be as religious as it has been in the past, except for the fact that immigrants are are more religious than natives. Uh, and and um, if that continues, I mean, the United States continues to, to import, you know, religious Catholics from south of the border and, and religious Muslims and Hindus from... Asia and uh, and those people continue to have uh, uh, larger families than uh, than us non-believers, and you, you can pretty much be assured that uh, there's going to be a limit to the disappearance of of religiosity in America and and the world of course and of course the, the the people south of the equator right now are nothing like the people of Europe uh, or or China even in in their level of religiosity they're much more religious than well it seems obvious <laughs> right right uh, it seems obvious that there are the gen- genetics plays a role in individual propensities to you know, embrace religion and do a number of other things. But I'm wondering if there's a certain tension in your thinking along these lines. So I, I was listening to a podcast with you and a woman named Krista Tippett, and she credited you with this line, the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice, but we have to keep doing the bending. So on one hand, you, you put a heavy emphasis on our evolved nature, and yet you are also arguing that we can overcome some of our negative impulses. So I, in, in terms of, you know, I think you talk about male propensity to violence. 
Um, so certainly there are things we can do to sort of counteract some of the things our genes are saddling us with. And I'm, so I, I don't know, do you have a, do you think, do you see a tension there or how do you, how do you, how do you balance those things between our dispositions and what we should be doing insofar as we can counteract s certain genetic dispositions? That's a, that's a very good question. I'm, I'm, you know, I had my last book was uh, about sex differences. It was called Women After All, Sex Evolution and the End of Male Supremacy. And, and you know, when I, when I think about, uh, about physical violence, when I think about uh, exploitative sexuality, both of, both of which are really uh, overwhelmingly male uh, uh, inclinations and ac actions, um, I, I can I can say unequivocally that I'd like to see the human species overcome those, preferably without eliminating males, but uh, but with a, a series of, of uh, historical and cultural changes that uh, that empower women more and that um, that make it less likely for men to uh, to resort to. Uh, to those inclinations, and and also women, have, you know, men and women both have inclinations toward toward greed and other kinds of exploitation, and and uh, um, so how do I? Um, I mean, I think what you're asking with the with the moral arc question, and really, it's a it's a, something that Obama quoted from um, from Martin Luther King, uh, but. It, uh, he, he, King uh, uh, was not the first to say it, but he did say that the uh, uh, the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice. And, and when when uh, when Obama quoted that in an important speech, um, he said he, he followed it by saying, "But it doesn't bend on its own." And and I, you know, I certainly uh, I don't think Dr. King would have disagreed <laughs> with that because he spent his life trying to bend it. Uh, faster and more, and and the only reason, well, I won't say the only reason. Uh, one of the main reasons that it bends is that that we consciously decide to to struggle against some of our uh, tendencies that our better judgment tells us to uh, uh, to to reprehend, uh, but. But uh, for for religious people, that's always in the context of their uh, their relationship with the supernatural. We, you know, either God gives you a set of principles that you follow directly or indirectly, or uh, in the case of, uh, of Buddhism, there's uh, there's a karma a karmic cycle in the universe that you uh, can can get in sync with more or or less, and 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 it depends on 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 you know, for Tibetan Buddhists, it depends on on compassion, uh, and and, and um, uh, so that's those are the people who who for whom being being becoming better uh, as as individuals and hopefully as a society and as a species. Uh, is 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 tied up with uh, supernatural beliefs. For someone like me, um, 
it's not. Uh, it, it's, it, it, it's consciousness of our origins. It's, it's understanding as much as possible about human nature. It's not being naive about, uh, about our inclinations. Uh, and um, it, it's, it, it also uh, in, involves a commitment to, uh, to trying to be better and, and to make the world a, a, a better place uh, as, as we see it. And I think that, that uh, for reasons we don't have time to go into, uh, there's a lot of merit in the uh, in the things that people like like Dawkins say about uh, about the evolution of ethical norms and behaviors being um, at least to some extent independent of of, uh, uh, of religious belief, and and certainly in, for somebody like me, it's not not dependent on revelation or or, or sacred texts. It's uh, it's something that people figured out, and I. I happen to think uh, that people figured it out in a way that was very intertwined with uh, religious faith for almost all of human history. And now, yeah, I I don't totally disagree with them. There does seem to be a decoupling going on. And I'm not that, I'm not really worried about that. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, I still don't know what the consequences ultimately would be of, of, of eliminating religion, but I, I'll tell you, I'll tell you where I, I really part company with them is that, that by, by pointing out the mistakes to, you know, that, that religions have made, uh, in, in, in terms of a scientific worldview, that they're going to convince people to abandon religion. I mean, they will. They will convince people who have less of that natural inclination uh, toward toward faith. Uh, but but you know, in some ways, they, I think they're very naive about about uh, about religion and faith because um, the, you know, despite Dawkins' declared interest in different religions and 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 Harris's. Uh, uh, interest in Buddhism. I mean, they, like most American Western Buddhists, um, secular Buddhists, they're, they're not interested in the uh, in the aspects of Buddhism that Buddhists consider fundamental, uh, and uh, uh, so they pick and choose what they what they like, and and uh, and the. You know the the idea that that uh, that number of them have, and you can read it in their writings. That that uh, here, I'm going to explain to you why you're wrong. Why it's not possible that Jesus came back from the dead. Why it's not possible that some some teensy particle of your being is going to exist after your death and enter another living thing. Uh, and that that's going to go on forever. Why it's not possible uh, um, for uh, uh, the Hebrews to have crossed the Red Sea on dry land. Ever, whatever um, beliefs that aren't consistent with science 
and that you and I and, and Richard and Sam might, might agree have no basis in fact, you don't, you don't get anywhere by just telling people that they have no basis in fact. And they, nine, nine times out of ten, or maybe not that much, but the great majority of people know that they have no basis in fact. There's never been um, a, a, you know, a, a religion that, uh, uh, that did not recognize that it was full of expensive commitments to, to, to things unseen and things unprovable. I mean, you, the, the, the religious people I grew up with would not be interested in proving that, that God exists or, or uh, proving that uh, the, uh, the ethical principles that they followed in their lives and the, and the rituals that they followed in their lives is something that God wants them to do. The Christians in the church I go to with my wife uh, at Easter time, which I find a very moving service, they're uh, not interested in in somebody telling them that that Jesus can't have come back from the grave. Uh, you know, in that modern modern church, probably. I, I, well, I don't know what the kind of church you grew up in, but Ari, but uh, you have a, a probably a broad range of beliefs about that. In a, in a congregation that's listening to a sermon about uh, about the resurrection, uh, but people are there because they're they're moved by the story, and some people are there because they absolutely believe it happened. And well, why did they believe it happened? Well, because three women saw Jesus after he was killed, and and three days later that he reappeared to them, and and. Uh, and that's an, that's evidence enough for me. Well, it's not evidence enough for for scientists, uh, but not everything that people believe has to be scientifically provable. Well, that's how well, I look at it. Yeah, go ahead. Part of my tradition was more literalist, and so and so more fundamentalist in a certain respect. So the truth of the propositions mattered a great deal, and our salvation depended on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of the. Th- things that I've gotten reading your book is that that's not the way that religion works for a lot of people. And I think that, I think the new atheists in a way, I think you make this point actually, the new, in a way the new atheists share something with the fundamentalists and that they want to interpret scripture in a literalist way. And a lot of religious people just, it, it's like you're talking past them. It's not, it's not even what they're interested in. So I think that point is a good one and, and well taken. And uh, man, I tell you what, we've been going almost an hour and a half, and there's a whole lot of strings that I have not pulled on, and I've got through about <laughs> half my notes. But well, I think I think we've covered a lot of ground and at least given people a good sense of what your book is about. Well, and I think I think you have to. I, I I would I would just call maybe call your attention to our to. Uh, Something relevant to what you were saying a few minutes ago. The, the, um, it's this idea um, put forward. I talk about it in the book put put forward and studied by by uh, the psychologist uh, uh, Christine Lagarde, and uh, it's the idea of coexistence reasoning. 
and and she finds that in in a number of different cultures, uh, people grow up with sort of compartments in their minds. One of which is for uh, for the material world and scientific. Uh, scientifically provable facts, and the other of which is for things unseen or for uh, the uh, convictions that can't be proved. And those, for for most people, I mean, you were saying you're saying that you grew up in a in a literalist uh, fundamentalist uh, um, st- stream of Christianity, where the, the, it was the commitment to the. Uh, to the real uh, supernatural events is very important. Um, that's true for some branches of all religions, and 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 then you have churches and synagogues and and, and mosques and temples where where some of the people who show up, uh, especially for major holidays, are true believers and some are not uh, and some have this coexistence reasoning uh, which is well you know I, I know that I, I, when I'm when I'm sick I have to I have to think about you know what doing what the doctor tells me to do uh, I have to eat right I have to sleep right uh, I have to do things that are proven valuable but I also want to pray or I also want to meditate, or I also want to uh, uh, bring a bowl of rice to to the statue of Buddha in my house or to the ancestors, uh, and they don't they don't um, have to their minds don't don't explode because <laughs> they're they're think, able to think on these two different tracks. Uh, that's what coexistence reasoning is. And lots and lots and lots of people can do it and do it all the time. Yeah, that's, that's some, that's what I was never comfortable with. So that's why I tend to side with the new atheists. I mean, I, I, I find their approach, like their approach resonates with me in a certain way, but so yeah, I appreciate this other side of religion that maybe I, you know, that's something that I wasn't exposed to as much, even though I was very religious. Um, well, I think we're going to wrap up. The book is Believers, Faith in Human Nature. And you have a, your website is at melvinconnor.com. Correct. And there's a lot of great stuff on there, including some stuff about some work that your you. current wife is doing, which is fascinating, and I wish we had time to talk about that. There's also a web page about your work, including your CV at Emory, which is a very extensive CV. Uh, is there any other obvious way to track your work besides what I mentioned? Uh, well, I have a Twitter uh, feed. I'm not. I'm not the most active user, but I'm, I'm moderately active. I would say um, on Twitter, um, it's at Tangled Wing, which was the name of my first book. But you can look up Mel Connor and find me. Um, and. Uh, uh, yes, I, ha- I actually also have have uh, another website that you might not have run across called uh, JewsAndOthers.com, which which is where I've spent some some time musing on uh, on my Jewish background and my 
and some aspects of Jewish Jewish history and and culture, uh, and and how how Jews fit into the rest of the the world. That's why it's called Jews and Others. Uh, I I like to think that my uh, my Jewish identity is is real, but not parochial. <laughs> if that makes any any sense, well, I'll check that out and start reading that, yeah. and I'll <laughs> definitely drop that in the show notes too. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and um, you know, if you find that that when you're editing this, um, you there's something you want to get that we didn't get. Feel free to set up another session, and however brief, I'll be glad to. Oh, well, if I did that, I might want to do a whole new session. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, um, yeah, resist the temptation for now. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, feel free free to um, take an interest in anything else that I am interested in. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, uh, and, the Tangled Wing looks looks really fascinating, even though the second edition is 2002, so it's a few years a, out now, right. but it still That's looks right. like kind of your fundamental um, work. Yes, I'm I'm worried about it it getting long in the tooth, but it but it uh, it, it took uh, I don't know about four years to to revise the 1982 edition and make the really different. 2002 edition. I'm not well, sure if that's the way I want to use in another four years uh, to, to bring that up to date. But it is. It is. You know, it's fundamentally a statement about about um, how it's possible to understand human nature from a scientific viewpoint. And it's in a in a way it's paralleled by by believers, except it's much more. It's much less specific, uh, and there's not much about religion in it, but it's about you know fundamental human inclinations, both positive and negative. And uh, um, well, maybe you could I, do an article just saying, if I were to update it, here's the sort of <laughs> things I would try to look at, just to kind of give people a, who read it kind of a hint as to what they would need to look at also well, to get like, updated. I like that idea. Now I just have to find somebody else who likes it. Somebody, somebody with a you know, with a printing press, or at least a a website that other people read. Uh, no, it's a, the the that is a nice idea. Um, so listen, Ari, I really enjoyed this conversation, and I'm sure you need to get on with other things and. Uh, but I, uh, I appreciate your your doing this very much, and I'll look forward to uh, seeing what comes out of it. Um, and um, thank you. Yeah, it was my it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for doing it. This has been the Self and Society podcast. I'm the host, Ari Armstrong. Our guest has been Melvin Connor, author of Believers. For more, please see ariarmstrong.com. Mm-hmm.